is Frank Rusty Hamilton. He lives in the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas, having spent many years on the road as musical director to the great and the good, such as Cool and the Gang, KC and the Sunshine Band and Bobby Womack. He wrote and produced Eddie Murphy's debut album, How Could It Be?, which went gold. And for Ronnie Woods, he was songwriter and producer. To keep naming artists with whom he's worked could be seen as rather vulgar. More recently, Rusty has released The Musician, an album he wrote, produced and mastered, and reflects all the influences which feature on the musical landscape of his life. In addition to writing, Rusty has assembled a 10-piece group to perform the music of both KC and the Sunshine Band and Cool and the Gang, in tribute to the fine musicians and hits they enjoyed together. Today, this multi-talented, multi-instrumentalist joins me to share how it all began and which tracks have made a mark on him throughout his life. Rusty, welcome. Uh, I mean, as I said, it's going to be rather vulgar naming everybody with whom you've worked. How on earth have you managed to enjoy such an illustrious career? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, express my journey. And yeah, I uh, don't really think about that part much. Uh, One thing comes and the other thing goes, and I'm quickly into whatever comes next. So there's really no time to sort of uh, reflect when you're sort of right in the middle of the happenings. So tell us, where did it all begin? Give us an um, insight into your family life and who was playing music as a child in and around your house? Yeah, there was nine of us, and uh, we um, had a lovely family uh, until the age of six or seven. There was basically no music in the house other than the radio. And uh, my mom had remarried at that time. My stepfather, uh, who worked every day very hard, was coming home one evening, and his pathway home was through an alleyway. And he saw an old organ that someone happened to be throwing away in the garbage. And he got it out of the garbage and brought it home. And uh, it was a gift for the entire family. Of course, it needed repairs, sort of a wind-type instrument that the wind was seeping out, so we had to tape it up to make sure that the wind didn't seep. Once we did that, it worked perfectly. So you're talking about a mouth organ, not a, a church organ. No, this is a wind, uh, sort of a reed organ that worked by wind. So the wind would actually blow hard enough to create the reeds to vibrate, uh, thus making the sound. And so it was a family gift, and the whole family enjoyed it up until about three months when it somehow ended up in my bedroom. And I remember learning that instrument and feeling emotions that I was really too young to feel. And how old were you at this uh, stage? How old were you at this age? I was, I think, around six or seven. And I remember feeling emotions that a six or seven-year-old should not have or had not experienced that. Emotions of love. I remember being sad back there in that room, laughing and crying. So it was a very emotional experience. Uh, And I sort of summed it up as, you know, some people make a conscious decision to choose music. Uh, Other people, music chooses them. And I am of the latter, where I never made a conscious choice to be involved with music. It it happened. It was sort of brushed upon me at an early age. Uh, and I wasn't aware that that would actually be my path in life. Where are you in the pecking order, a family of eight siblings? 
I am second to the youngest. Uh, of course, that meant that uh, <laughs> everything trickled down to me. And of course, I trickled it on down to my younger brother. <laughs> you know how that goes. You have picked up this organ instrument, reed instrument. And where does your music progress from there? Well, the first actual feeling of doing a concert for an audience was actually my family. Every Thursday night, I would gather them all in the front room, bring the organ to the front room, and play them the songs that I had learned for that week. They would be dancing around me, and I also had a brother who sort of picked up the guitar at an early age as well. And so we sort of provided the entertainment for the family every Thursday night. And from then on, uh, as I said, my mom had remarried. We also had a stepbrother who was a bit older than us. I think he was more like 13 or 14. He played guitar and sang very well. He was a great influence on us uh, as we uh, found that he knew so much more than we did. We were able to learn from him, and then we went on to put a band together called the Odyssey Band, and we performed at my sixth grade graduation. So sixth grade for us Brits is what age? That's about... Uh, 10, 11, yes, but I was actually 9, 10, because I was actually in the fifth grade. So you've discovered music and you realize that you are reacting emotionally to the music that you are playing. And then you suddenly start getting involved in music. Um, Did it feel a natural fit? Well, not in the beginning. There was a point where I actually got tired of that organ because I didn't think I was progressing fast enough. I don't know where I got the criteria that I should be, but that's what I thought. And so I sort of put it up in the closet and like, I'm not going to play this thing ever again. I'm done with it. So I basically gave it up couple weeks went by and I, it started calling me. I was hearing it calling me from that closet. I'd be outside playing and, and I'd get a feeling that I should go back and get it. And eventually, I got it out of the closet again and started playing once again. And at that, that point, I started to progress a lot faster, learning chord melodies and different things, writing songs. So I knew that that's what I would be doing. There was no thought. There was no other thought of anything else. That was it for me. So your first choice is Stevie Wonder, If You Really Love Me. Tell us why you've selected this track. Well, that song, uh, Stevie Wonder at the time hadn't started doing his original type music. He was still doing songs written by other artists. If You Really Love Me uh, sort of caught my ear every morning. We were waking up for school, getting ready, and that song would be playing on the radio. And it just was the beginning of this this new phase in my life that I, I felt like I, I actually could do something. This guy is such an inspiration. I want to, I want to, I want to sound like that. I want to, although that song did not have harmonica in it, Stevie played harmonica and he's also a great influence on harmonica uh, for me as well. But yeah, that song was the beginning of the, a new phase musically for me. He introduced uh, the, the chords in that song was sort of had a jazz influence. I hadn't heard chords like that before. And so that uh, sort of sparked my ears. And he's sort of the first artist that I sort of uh, honed in on. Well, if you really love me, won't you 
together that, that junior high school was Bancroft junior high and uh, yes well, that's at the height of, the well, we at the peak of their success were they having success at the time they joined they, the school they had just came out with their first couple of records you know ABC and once you back all that stuff was going on and how were they fitting in having had such success or emerging success how did you see them fitting in with that school life? Well, I, I saw that they were, okay, back then, okay, I was riding the bus to school every day. They were getting picked up <laughs> by limousines. And uh, they pretty much had an escort most of the time waiting for them. So, yeah, they were sort of uh, very noticeable, but they weren't the only stars there uh, at that school at the time. Who else were other, you in company of? famous actors that had their kids there as well. It was a local school. Uh, the Hollywood Hills were maybe a mile away or so, and basically that was the school in that area. So you're at school with members of the Jackson family and you are seeing their emerging success. You said they had one or two hits already under their belt. How did this look and feel to you as a young person? 
I I saw how people reacted to them. I I felt like that was something that I probably could enjoy. I also thought that the lack of privacy was something that I didn't think I would enjoy. So it was a double fold going on there when I experienced watching them. So your second track is um, War, Cisco Kid. And I admit, I hadn't heard this, but it's quite an interesting track. What does it mean to you? Basically, because of that harmonica part played by Mr. Lee Oscar, uh, it was a time that I was just learning how to play the harmonica and needed some guidance, someone to follow. And that song just created that for me. Uh, It was a time that I... Uh, 13 or 14 years old, still going to the same school. And I uh, just wanted to have another instrument behind my back. Plus, I knew that Stevie Wonder played that harmonica. He played a chromonica, which has a bar on the side of it, which allows you to play every note sharp and flat. Well, I didn't want to sound exactly like Stevie, so I chose the blues harp, which is uh, basically a diatonic instrument that does a major scale. So if you want any notes like Stevie hit, you have to bend them, and that causes your armature to tighten up with your lips, and that creates the bending sound on the harmonica, which allows me to be separate from Stevie Wonder. Put your own stamp on the music that you make. <laughs> Were there um, girlfriends on the horizon? Well, I remember, you know, I was very young at the time, and I, I experienced love through my music, but never actual physical love and I remember after a show uh, there was a young lady that wanted to take a picture with me and uh, I was afraid and one of my band members he hollered out put your arm around her Rusty (laughs) that made me so nervous (laughs) I could my arm was frozen I couldn't move it and uh, why were you so terrified (laughs) why were you so terrified of uh, the photo op I have no idea. I don't even know. I think that at that time I I hadn't had time to think about girls. It was my that was my first girl thought was put your arm around her, Rusty. I bet the bandmates thought you were doing them a disservice by not participating in that game. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it was a challenge, no doubt. I was born in Los Angeles, California, right around South Central Los Angeles. So I experienced all of the uh, social unrest and the experiences with, let's just say, uh, living in areas that are uh, impoverished. So give us a bit of insight into how that um, relationship might have helped inform your music. Well, I always thought that, you know, these guys have thoughts and dreams, especially basketball players. Basketball players say they win an award or they do something great and they have to speak. Well, the first thing they do is, you know, I want to thank my mama, my grandmama. And I'm going to buy her a house. I promised her I would, and I did, you know. So that wasn't basically uh, an incentive, but I knew that we were impoverished and that if I could be successful with this music, then somehow I might be able to help my family 
I'll live a better life. And I think that's the thought of most young kids uh, when you have a talent or that there's something that you can do fairly well and you think that that's something that you're going to continue to work on as a professional, then that thought does occur that you want to be able to help your family and try to bring them up the uh, economic scale. I understand that. But also to witness that at such close hand, that environment of South Central L.A., it's got to be heartbreaking anyway. Well, let's just say that I learned how to fight very well because I had to protect myself. And, you know, guys, you know, hey, you walk out your door, here's a guy down the street, he wants a quarter from you. This guy wants a dime and, you know, it's just very little money, but it was your lunch money. It was all you had. So eventually you had to fight for your lunch money. You didn't want him to take it from you. And you had to make sure that even if it meant, you know, you had to go a different route, you had to walk another 15 or 20 minutes before you got to school to avoid the areas that you knew they would be waiting on you. And I'm going to fight them if I have to. Eventually, you fight them, they stop bothering you, and then you have free passage to wherever you're going. You say, hey, don't bother that guy. He's going to fight you back. So what kept you on the straight and narrow? Well, it was an incident that happened. My mom was coming to the school that I had went to. This is before. This is sort of elementary school going into high school. And uh, there was a lot of fighting going on there. My mom was going to pick me up at lunch. We were going to go do a talent show at a local high school. And in order for me to get into the hallways to meet her, there were hallway guards that didn't want to let me in. So I had to get in somehow. And so uh, they proceeded to approach me in a sort of uh, attack manner. And I think at that time, I thought I needed to have a chain. So I had a chain on me, and they had knives, and we were going at it. And my chain wrapped around a knife, and he swung it back. My chain ended up in a tree somewhere. So I had no choice but to run. So I'm running in the school, and as I'm running around the corridor, going up the stairs one end, down the other, down the stairs, repeating that, my mom and the drummer walks into the front door of the school as they see me run by and two guys are chasing me. And so it created such a ruckus that my mom realized that once we were talking to the principal, once that was over, the principal said, ma'am, your son had a chain. My mom, church-going woman, we were a church-going family. She said, no, sir, my son would never have a chain. The principal looked over at me, do you have a chain? Me being the honest guy that I am, well, yeah, here it is right here. The look on my mom's face when she saw that I actually had a chain was enough for me. That was it. I said, okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be trying to fight. I'm just going to try to pursue my music career and avoid this type of trouble because at the time, my mom was actually managing this group called Odyssey with myself, my brother, my stepbrother, and a friend down the street who played drums. So this is all the same band that actually lasted for five years. As in the Odyssey? Well, no. 
this is we had that name way before the Odyssey. Yes, because when we heard that name, we were quite disappointed. And I'll just lead you up to this this moment in my career because this will be basically that first phase. So this lasted for five years. This Odyssey band, my mom managing our group, brother, step brother, family members, and friends. When I turned fourteen, uh, we moved to an area called Palm Springs. We could not afford the equipment that we were leasing, so my mom had to return it back to the music store. We moved out of Los Angeles to Palm Springs. I had no musical equipment. The band had broken up. Half the guys were still in Los Angeles. The band had broken up. I was 14 years old. I thought my life was over. That was it for me. I've never been one to want to do anything to hurt myself, but if there was a time where I would have thought that, that would have been it. Because at the age of 14... I thought, okay, my life is done. I'm done. But fortunately, I continued. And we'll get into that. That's the next phase. Well, lead into that. The next choice is the Isley Brothers for the love of you. Fill us in. Well, that record uh, at at that time, I'm just going to have a look here. That record at that time for the love of you, I realized that I had been influenced by the Isley Brothers for so long. Because everything that I had written and had wrote, I realized, had a lot of their characteristics, melodies, sort of uh, keyboard lines and things like that. And I thought, this is such a quiet influence, the Isaac Brothers. So by the time For the Love of You hit, and believe it or not, uh, I think I was experiencing uh, my first girlfriend, I believe. And she sort of liked me. And I remember For the Love of You was on the radio, and I had a girl that I thought I liked, and it was just a beautiful period uh, in my life. Peace. 
So he'd be actually romanticizing his girlfriend through me, <laughs> basically. And I'm sitting there playing and they're talking, you know, looking at each other. And so I, I understood that, well, I think that I should be able to do that with my own girlfriend. You were entertaining your brother and his girlfriend. Who was going to provide that entertainment for you and your love interest? Well, that's what that's what I came to the conclusion. I thought that, hey, if I could entertain him and his girlfriend, I certainly must be able to entertain my own girlfriend with this piano. And boy, did I find out that that is a very romantic instrument. And you can croon the socks off a person if you know what you're doing. <laughs> so it worked its magic for you. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I said the socks, but there could be other things you know, it was interesting that you're talking about your mother managing Odyssey, not the Odyssey, um, mm-hmm. but a band of which you were part. 
Um, had she any experience of managing and how did this come about? No, she had not prior to that. We were basically a struggling family and my mom used or worked with the band to create uh, sort of um, income, a small amount of income, monetary funds, to create monetary funds to, to keep us going. We also had, uh, there was a guy by the name of Barry White who had entered our lives at that time and wanted to sort of work with the band and produce the band and make a record, which he actually did. Uh, and that was the moment in which I thought maybe we would go on and be very successful. Everything was in play. All the I's were dotted, T's were crossed. However, when it came time to uh, put the pen to the paper, as they say, my mom basically decided that that wasn't the direction she wanted her boys to go in. Being a church-going family, as I mentioned before, uh, the people that were coming around us were, were adults that were uh, freely uh, doing drugs. So less than I mean, desirable people. Well, I mean, it was normal to do that. It wasn't like it was anything. It didn't look bad to us. My mom just knew that that wasn't anything she wanted her boys to be a part of. So she declined the deal of the record contract that was offered to us. And thus meaning that now we would have to, on our own, try to make it in this business of music without the help of her or anyone else or the boost of having that popularity at, at a young age that would have set me up a lot more than, a lot further than I had, had been without it. What was your reaction to having the rug pulled out from under oh, you? Oh, I was upset with her to no end. I have to be honest. I was very upset with my mom. But as I got older, I realized that she did the right thing. Because I look at certain artists and I look at their attitude and, and their, their fortitude. They feel like nothing can touch them. They own the world. They're ready to try anything. And next thing you know, their life has been cut short because they lived too hard. Too hard a life. There wasn't anything that they would not try or was afraid of. So I think that the fact that she did not allow us to do that, I'm probably still alive today because of it. This Barry White, how did that relationship move forward? Interesting. I, uh, from that moment on, we hadn't seen or heard from Barry other than the hit songs that he were, was making on the radio. We had no idea where he was or what he was doing, as I said, other than the music that he had been making. He became very popular and famous. Years later, as I attended Hollywood High School, there was a studio right across the street. Someone said, hey, the uh, Love Unlimited Orchestra, that was the orchestra that Barry White was working with, they're, they're practicing across the street there. And so I thought, hey, I think I'll go there and have a look around. So I did go. And Barry was there, but I was too afraid to talk to him. I didn't want to say anything. I was shy. So that moment got away. Years later, I ran into Barry White again. I was working with Bobby Womack at A&M Studio. Barry White walks in, compliments the music we're working on, and I thought that would have been a great opportunity to reintroduce myself with him. I only had to say, 
a couple of words before he knew exactly who I was after all this time. I mean, I was a kid then. And I said, hey, Mr. White, uh, uh, we were working together many years ago. My mom, Addie B. Addie, you want to add it, boys? Oh, Addie Porter. Oh, my God. He hit my number. Well, back then, you know, you had a, a um, pager, office number, home number. He gave me about five or six different phone numbers. He made sure that I. So I contacted Barry White. We spoke. And I went up to his house. I had a song for him. I played him that song. He loved it. It was on his comeback album entitled The Man Is Back. And there's a song called I Want to Do It Good To You. And I actually put Barry White back on the map with that song all these years later. So that was a pretty interesting experience for me. Well, Bruce Hornsby, I was actually, you know, I always tell people, you know, I say Beverly Hills, I was living, but I wasn't quite living in Beverly Hills. I was Beverly Hills adjacent, you know, West Los Angeles, close to that area. And I uh, very much into production at the time. I had produced a couple albums with Bobby Womack. We'd worked together. And Bruce Hornsby, when that song came out, it was had a, such a unique sound to it, you know, basic acoustic instruments the piano was the leading sound on that and very non-pretentious sending this message like everything is really messed up but don't worry we're going to make it better you know that's the way it is but don't believe that because we're going to change it and that message for me was everything I knew at that point I even said to one of my musical associates that that record would win a Grammy song, and lo and behold, it was. I, I chose that record to win a Grammy, and it did. So that song, at that time in my life, Just the way it is How, 
If you're going through some stuff and you're at a tip interview, that song is going to tip you over. You're going to cry. That's just, yeah. that's the way it is. <laughs> I have a pure spirit, so I'm, I'm open and very vulnerable to things that are highly emotional. So you haven't actually told us how you got from the organ to keyboards. You gave us a little bit of insight to um, entice the young lady but how did it become your main instrument, if at all? That that came when the band Odyssey actually broke up at the age of 14. I had not yet played the piano or a synthesizer, if you will. I was an organ player, strictly. The organ is sort of, you can hold that tone and it won't let go until you release it. The piano, you hit it, the tone eventually dies out, it dissipates. So that to me was like I really didn't like the piano when I first started playing it because you had to play it the, the uh, what do you call the tension on the keys are a lot harder. So there's resistance on the piano, whereas the organ 
it's a very light touch. You can move those fingers across those keys really quick. And so I became slower on the piano. I had to play harder. It was tough. So I had to basically relearn this instrument. And, and then so I learned the piano, which I wasn't as good. To this day, I don't really consider myself a pianist. I can play the piano. I can do that pseudo jazz stuff. I can do all that. But that's really not what I do. I'm an organ player, but I haven't played organ in years. <laughs> so what substitutes that? There's, this is where the synthesizer comes in. You can get any organ sound you want from it. The keys are pretty much the same, light. You can go through it with your fingers. You can tickle them really easy. And for that, I became very attracted with the synthesizer because you can change the sound. You can make it sound like a piano, organ, flute, strings, drums, anything you want. So I said, oh, no, this is my instrument, the synthesizer. So I became very good at it. I became basically a scientist of sound. I didn't mention I work with Babyface. I didn't even put that in the whole thing because that was just a... Uh, a Tell a us more about tour. that relationship. Uh, well, I'll just say this. We had a great, great relationship. And if he should ever hear this interview, I'm still waiting on that chess game, my friend. You know, you kind of shied away from it a few times when you saw me beat a couple other band members, but I'm still waiting on that chess game. The challenge is still there. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like that he owes you X amount of money. <laughs> I love it. A chess game. Well, You're waiting. Me, I, I have that story. Every musician does. Just it happens to not be babyface. I I'm just thrilled it's over chess because that that just I think makes it far more entertaining. I'm thrilled that you've chosen this next track next track, Squitty Bali Squitty Politi. Can't even say it. Um it's it's a, it's a great track and I remember them as well from the eighties and what have you. But give us your insight into this. Oh man. Those guys just really did something to my musical psyche. I mean, I had people around me noticing how much I loved that song. And they thought for some reason that I wanted to sound like them because it was such a heavy influence, that music, the way he sang, the chord progression, the sounds. I always knew that I could be easily influenced if all the elements were right in a song. All the elements were perfect in that song. My friends around me thought, hey, man, you're, you know, you're losing it. You're, 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 you're putting these guys on a pedestal. Uh, why can't you write something like that? So it became, so they were challenging me because I said, hey, listen, the whole idea of this is not for me to feel like I need to compete with them. I enjoy having such awesome musicians and songwriters to influence me just like I enjoy going to watch a good match whether it be sports or uh, you know a vocal uh, sing-off or dance-off so it's not I don't feel that I have to compete with it in the sense where I have to write something like that I can just simply enjoy it for what it is it was fresh it was new I knew that it wasn't it wasn't a hit song in our country here. It was just something that was different, that stood out, 
that I thought was the baddest song on the radio. professional relationship uh, came about with both of these fantastic bands so my influence with those bands and how that came about cool is an interesting start with those guys i'm at home in los angeles california i get a call from uh cool and the gang's manager and they are in japan and he says to me, hey, listen, Cool's brother was in your studio, and he says that you're the guy for us. We're in Japan. We need you here ASAP. 
So I'm thinking, Clue's brother, who was that? He says he was in your studio. So there was a guy in my studio that came in just to do some digital transfer. Never heard him play, didn't know who he was, but he was Clue's brother. After the session was over, normally I kick people out of the studio. Time's up, bye-bye. This guy wanted me to hear some effects. He had just brought this new unit. He says, hey, I'd love to hear these effects, but you're going to have to play your keyboards in order to access these effects. You play, I'll move the effects. So I started playing. I said, okay, I won't kick you out. I'll hang out with you for five minutes. So we started to do that. And I got excited hearing the effects from this little machine he had. So naturally, when I get excited, I start playing better. I start putting my foot in it, really getting into it not realizing that this is Cool's brother right here listening to me. And so it was over. I was happy with what I heard. He was happy with her. Bye-bye. Never heard from him again. Two weeks later, I get the call from Cool and the Gang's manager saying, Amir, this is Cool's brother, says that you're the perfect guy for the group. Our keyboard player has left us. We need a keyboard player. Amir says that's you. So I'm like, okay, well, uh, let's talk some business. So we did that. And he says, uh, we're sending you a ticket. We need you on the plane tomorrow. I'm thinking tomorrow. No. Okay. Wow. Can you send me some music? Can I listen to anything? Of course, every musician in the world knows Celebration, Get Down On It, Ladies Night. We all know those songs. But no one has played them with Cool in the Gang, so you don't really know if you know it or not. You sort of pseudo know it. So... I said, well, can I have music? He says, no, you're not going to hear anything. We don't have anything to send you. Jump on a plane. The limo's going to pick you up. We'll have an outfit. I gave him my measurements. We'll have an outfit in the limo. You switch into that, change into that, come right to the venue, get out of the car, and come on stage. No way. No They're in the dressing room getting ready to go on stage. And before I knocked on the door to enter the dressing room where they all were, all of the Cool and the Gang members, I heard Mr. J.T. Taylor saying, yeah, you know, yeah, but, you know, we've never heard this guy play. We don't know who he is, man. He's coming in blind. What have we gotten ourselves into? They didn't know me from Adam. I was just uh, suggested by Cool's brother. And so I heard them say this. So when I opened the door, the first thing I said was, hey, guys, not to worry. I said, I heard everything you said outside the door. I said, not to worry. When in doubt, lay out. I'm not going to be playing through any uh, interludes, any changes, any bridges. Anything I don't know, I won't play. I'm just going to play your songs like I know them. I played these songs all my life. So they were like, okay, okay, it's pretty bold. He came in, kind of cooled us down a little bit. So I did exactly that. Went on stage that night. We, we had a great show. I played their songs, got through the first show. The next day we rehearsed. And I was with them for 10 years after that. How amazing. And by the way, I was only supposed to be a sub till they brought in the guy that they actually were looking for who couldn't make the Japan tour. So, yeah, that was sort of like a blessing in disguise for me. Let's get on to your final track. Um, Chick Career, The Electric Band, All Love. Now, I had a nightmare trying to get this, but I finally managed to get it. Oh, did you? <laughs> and oh, my God, I'm so pleased that you selected this and gave me the opportunity to listen to it because I think it's stunning. Yes, thank you so much. And I totally agree. 
if you know anything about Chick Corea, this song is is a jewel. It's a jewel. He it's it's sort of outside of what he would normally do. Uh, he is a very innovative musician. He's he's one of the best at what he does. And this is the, probably the most simplest form of and piece of music that he has done that has so much heart and emotion in it. And it's it, it's not a song that I would want to learn how to play. That's not where I'm going with this. It's a song that I can sit back, and especially after uh, Chick Corea, rest in peace, we love you. He's no longer with us, but his legacy still lives. I can go back to that song, and I can play that song, and it reminds me of everything he'd ever done in the past and how all the feelings that I've ever had about him. And it sort of sums up my musical emotion with this type of music that no one's ever going to, you know, it's never going to be a hit song. It's never going to be popular. You're never going to get a bunch of people screaming and hollering and saying, oh, I love this song. It's quiet, it's soft, it's subtle. It just brings out a softness and a subtlety that I, I think that is so important with music. It's sort of a non-pretentious way of saying, you know, I love you, I care for you, I, I want the best for you, and, and this is the song that I want to use to show you that.
my final question is, thinking about that 14-year-old lad wanting to get into the hall to go and meet his mother and having to encounter two thugs, one wielding a knife and you wielding the chain for protection, what would you like to go back and tell him, that younger self? The thing about life that I always try to express with, with my friends, associates, and loved ones, uh, there's, there's one word that I keep dear to my heart, and, that, and I think this word is highly underrated, and that word is understanding. When you understand a thing, then you have more control over your thoughts about that thing, and you also have more control over that thing. When we understand ourselves, we tend to make better decisions. Understanding is underrated. And I wish that there was more of it.